Amen. That's awesome. Heavenly Father, thanks for today. Um, your faithfulness right now in this moment, Jesus, that you are at the Father's right hand, alive, risen from the dead, in a resurrected body. It is exactly in some way, somehow, what we will receive one day when we die. Your existence in heaven right now interceding for us, it, it is our hope. It is our rock. It is your faithfulness that you now live forever to intercede for those whom you've saved. Father, I, I just, we look to you right now. And Lord, with all my heart, God, I just pray that you would help us to look away from ourselves, look away from our own strength. I pray that we'd look away from our own track record. It's filled with stumblings and falling down and failures. But as we sang in so many of those songs this morning, Jesus, we just worship you in this moment with sincerity of heart be, and declare with all our might together that you've never failed. Thank you, Jesus, that you never failed. Thank you for that rock. Thank you for that assurance that we have right now in this moment this morning. Pray that everyone here would run to you, that we would run to that rock. We would run to that of the only thing that we can be certain of, that you never fail. It's in your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen. Good morning. Got your Bibles, grab them. Go to uh, Romans chapter 4 is where we are at today. Going to primarily be looking at Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 17, verses 9 through 17. Let me jump in and read it. Paul says in verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it counted before or after he had been circumcised? It was not counted after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but came through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written. 
I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Would you just pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, thanks. <coughs> thanks again for today. Thanks for your word. Please open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from it. Amen. I'm sure many of you have maybe heard the statistics before that upwards of 70, and some, some studies say as much as 93% of all communication is nonverbal. In other words, it's not primarily what you say, the words that you say, it's how you say it, it's your body language, it's the expression, it's the expression on your faith. Anybody heard that before? Um, nonverbal communication is primarily one of the ways that we communicate. I think one of the reasons that we pick this up and one of the reasons it's so powerful is that I think we pick it up primarily when we're kids. Um, kids, and all of us, if we're not kids now, we were a kid at one time. Um, Captain Obvious, I know. But um, we, we have this great uh, kind of intrinsic desire to know that our parents especially, many adults, but our parents approve of us and that um, we have their blessing. Uh, many times, and in, in just in talking with people over the years, again, this isn't any sort of like scientific study, but I think some of the studies bear this to be true, but I've had many conversations with people, and one guy in particular I remember, he, he grew up in somewhat of a cantankerous home uh, with, his, with his parents, and, and he, he got to the place where he said he would wait every day for his dad to come home from work and he said he would be looking out his bedroom window and he could tell by the way his dad stepped out of the truck and the first glimpse of his father's face that he would get through the window as he got out of the, out of the truck what that evening was going to be like. What it was going to be like, what the mood of the house was going to be like that evening as his dad entered. And could he, could he run to his father or was he just going to stay in his room because he knew it was going to be one of those nights. And I say that because <clears throat> I wonder how we perceive the face of our Heavenly Father. What is His countenance towards us? What is His body language? Now, God is spirit. <laughs> okay, many times the Bible will talk about the face of God or the hand of God. Technical theological terms is called an anthropomorphism. It's, it's putting... Um, earthly, physical traits onto God, but God is, God is spirit. And yet, God has chosen in his word to, to communicate to us and let us know what his demeanor, what his countenance, um, what his heart is towards us in his word. At the beginning of this passage, Paul asks a question, and he says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised. Now, let's go back, and I want to pick up where I was out on the west side last week, but I want to pick up some that I talked about there because it's so important that we understand what he's speaking of in regards to this question of blessing. He's quoted in the verses right before that, that I didn't read this morning, but in 7 and 8, from David in Psalm 32, and, and he keeps repeating this word, this word blessed. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count 
his sin. And then in verse 9, he says, is this, is this blessing? And again, this, this idea of blessing in the Old Testament, tying it back in with what I'm talking about in regards to the Father's countenance and his body language, so to speak, his, 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 his demeanor towards us, one of the primary places that we see this blessing spoken of and the picture that's given of God's countenance and face towards us um, this idea of blessing runs all through the Old Testament. And in, and in Numbers chapter 6, there's a somewhat famous benediction where God tells Aaron to speak to the people. He tells Aaron and Moses to speak to the people and he, and he wants them to say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. Again, that idea of blessing. He says, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and the Lord be gracious to you. And then he goes back to the idea of face or countenance again. And he says, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Is the thing that ultimately gives us peace, what we're looking for in our lives, is understanding that the most powerful being in all the universe, who as Christians, is our Heavenly Father. That he smiles towards us. He smiles towards us. And I'm telling you, in this passage today in Romans, chapter 4, it, it, it's, uh, it's kind of funny, I was telling somebody this week, you know, it's a little bit of a technical argument at the beginning. Did you notice how many times I said the word circumcision or circumcised? You're like, and the weird thing is, every time we're over in this room, which is only twice a year, I end up talking about circumcision. I don't know what that means. I'm not really sure. I, hopefully it means nothing. I don't know. Um, but... So it's, it's a little bit of like, there's, there's some technical argumentation here, but brothers and sisters, what I want to say is that this, I, I hope by God's grace to be able to articulate the heart of God from this passage. Because within some of the technical arguments that Paul is going to give, we see the heart of God, or if you will, we see the face of God and his smile and his intention towards us. And man, if, if you see it, if you understand it, and if you believe it, if you believe God's heart towards you, I am telling you, it will change your life. Will absolutely change your life. And I'm convinced that so many of us live our Christian life in sometimes in victory and sometimes in defeat. And I know that part of that is just the reality of you know, living in this world until Jesus comes back or we die and go home to glory. But, but there's an inconsistency to our lives and, I, and I'm convinced that a big part of it is rooted in the fact that we're not sure what our Father's heart is towards us. We feel like some days he steps out of the truck and he's smiling and we feel like other days he steps out of the truck and he's angry. And so we just want to hide in our room. But I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for those who have believed in Jesus, the smile, the countenance of God, the blessing of God is for us. And man, if we were just convinced of that every single moment, the church would be radically changed, the world would be radically changed, the way we live would be radically changed, the things we pursue, the things we value, the things we desire, it would all be changed. And so it's a big order, but that's what I want to convince you of this morning from this passage, okay? And so three things uh, about the heart of God here as we go through this passage and work through some of the technical arguments, and hopefully, though, you'll see how it all ties together. I want to talk about the intention of God to bless the world, the kindness of God to give us the world, and the power of God to change the world. 
the intention of God to bless the world, the kindness of God to give us the world, and the power of God to change the world. First of all, the intention of God to bless the world. Paul asked the question in verse 9, is this blessing, is this smile, is this favor of God towards us, is it for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Is it just for Jews or is it for the whole world? Paul answers the question. For we say that faith is counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Paul was going back to the story of Abraham and the chronology, the sequence of events in Abraham's life are very, very important. He says here in verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Now, last week, uh, Paul quoted um, in chapter 4, uh, where is it, in verse, in verse 3, where it says, he's, he's quoting there from Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where it says that Abraham and Sarah, they are barren. Abram's like, and how are you going to give, you promised me a child, you promised me an offspring, and you know, we're still barren, we still haven't had any kids. God brings him outside. God says, look to the heavens. He looks to the heavens, and he says it again. Your offspring is going to be as many as the stars as you see in the sky. And then just says, Abraham, just believed God. And Abraham's standing out there, and he's like, I mean, just imagine this, this barren man and his wife, they can't have any kids, they're, they're old, they're old to begin with, they're even older now. He's standing out there, he's looking at the stars, God gives him this unbelievable promise, and faith is just simply going, okay, okay, if you say so, but in that moment, in the presence of God, Abraham was justified, simply because he believed God. Do not overcomplicate faith, please, Okay? He just believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, it was counted to him as righteousness. 14 years later, at least 14 years later, could have been a little bit more, but at least 14 years later, that was Genesis chapter 15, 14 years later in Genesis chapter 17, God gives to Abraham the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision, okay? And so Paul, this is what Paul's speaking of in verse 11. He says, it says, he received the sign, of, the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Now, his, now circumcision was a really, really big deal to the Jewish, to the Jewish people, and, and, it's, and it's kind of attached to the whole of the law. Although the law comes later, several hundred years later, through Moses and the giving of Mount Sinai, circumcision was still a part of that. And many times when it speaks of circumcision, it's almost kind of lumping together the whole idea of the law that God, that God gave to his people. And so the, the argument that Jews and other people would make here is that there's just no way, there's no way that God can just simply, on the basis of simple faith, looking up to the heavens and just going, okay, and believing that, there's no way that that can actually have righteousness credited to us or counted to us or that God actually accepts us, smiles upon us. Be just simply because of faith. And Paul's saying, yes, it absolutely is because of faith. Again, throughout this whole section of Romans, Paul is just hammering away at the doctrine of what we call sola fide, that it is justification by faith alone. And that's it. And what's amazing about this is when you study the book of Genesis and the life of Abraham, again, chapter 15, Abraham believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness. Chapter 17, he receives circumcision as a sign and as a seal of the righteousness that he had he'd received. And if I could just real quick, a sign and a seal, it's... Um, it's just pointing to a reality. 
So the sign points to the fact that the reality is there and a seal is like the authentication of that reality. Real, real quick example, um, I think about food a lot. Food is like constantly on my mind, okay? Like what I'm going to eat next, I just, it is, I'm being honest. Um, so much so that even this past week I was thinking about, in a couple weeks, Lord willing, we're going to go down to the Smoky Mountains over spring break for a little family vacation. And I, this literally came into my mind the other day. Is I, was, I was thinking about the drive down there, and I was thinking about where we would stop to eat on the way down to our vacation. Don't judge me, okay? It's, um, but, and, and I was like, you know, it's not the most gourmet thing, but I love me some Chick-fil-A. Can I get an amen? I was thinking, Chick-fil-A, that's where it's already decided in my head that we're going to eat Chick-fil-A. And I thought, you know, we're going to be cruising down the interstate, and I'm like, I'm going to look, and we're heading south, so, you know, I'm assuming the Chick-fil-A's will be abundant and all over the place um, <clears throat> as you head south. But, uh, but uh, what's going to happen is, on some level, Lord willing, we're going to be driving along the interstate, and we're going to see a sign, the big, tall, like the real big one that you see from the interstate, right, with the big red seed, and then it kind of looks like a chicken, doesn't Anyway, but you're going to see the Chick-fil-A sign. And that sign is going to point to the reality that there's a restaurant somewhere nearby. And so I'm going to get off the exit. And then I'm going to go through the drive-thru and I'm going to get a spicy chicken deluxe with the waffle fries. No pickles, by the way. Um, and I'm going to order spicy chicken deluxe. And then it is going to come to me in this box, which is, also has the Chick-fil-A logo on it, which is like a seal of what is inside, that what I'm about to partake of, the substance of what I'm about to partake of, is what I've been longing for. <laughs> the spicy chicken deluxe. Now here's the thing, I'm not going to drive off and just stare at that sign. <gasps> Look at that sign and wait for spicy chicken deluxes to magically fall from the sky. Nor am I going to look at the box or the wrapper that the sandwich comes and go, oh, wow, look, I'm going to toss that thing aside because I want the substance, I want the reality of what those things point to. Are you with me? So circumcision, here's the point, circumcision as a sign and a seal, it just pointed to the reality of Abraham's justification by faith alone. Now, why is that such a big deal? And why is it, I'm going to use this word, it's almost scandalous. So let me go back and finish the sentence that I started earlier and then had, went into that Chick-fil-A illustration. Chapter 15, he's justified by faith. God credits it to him as righteousness. Chapter 17, he receives circumcision as a sign and a seal pointing to the reality of the justification by faith. Do you know what happens in chapter 16? Abraham has that whole deal with Hagar and births Ishmael. And that was a big mess up, Amen. It was sin. But God gives the sign of circumcision pointing back to the reality that that justification by faith still stood. Do you understand? Fourteen years later, with all the mess of life in between, justification by faith alone that God credited to him as righteousness despite his moral failings, it still stood. And see, now, right now, right now, I, in fact, if I'm, if, I'm understand, if I'm explaining this correctly, there should almost be like a, what, what? How can that possibly be? See, this is the scandal of the grace of God. That he can make righteous people, that he can impute a righteousness to a people that are not righteous. 
And we're going to get, we're going to get, hang with me, we're going to get to Romans chapter 6 because the question that's popping up, well, what then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's exactly the question Paul is going to answer when we get to chapter 6. So hold on, it's a few months away for us, but it's like five minutes away if you just keep reading. Okay? So he's going to get there. But what you have to understand now is this is the radical nature of this message of justification by faith. And that it is good news to the nations that to all who will simply believe, God is willing to credit them a righteousness. And please look at the intention. See the heart of God in this passage, understanding that. Look at verse 11. Let's pick it up. He says, the purpose, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Listen, another little purpose phrase. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Who's the them? It's everybody other than Abraham, all the nations, including us who sit in this room this morning. Do you understand God's heart in this? Why did God come to Abraham when he came to him in his barrenness, in his nothingness, in his weakness, in the, in the time in his life where he could absolutely do nothing about his circumstance? He shows up to him then. He credits righteousness to him then. He gives him his promise then so that all of us who feel like we're barren, who know that we're nothing, who know that we are weak and that we have nothing to offer so that all of us would know that this righteousness can come to us as well. Do you understand? Like God does what he does when he does it, not just to show what he can do, but to communicate who he is. And who he is is a God that comes and intends to bless the world. Amen. This is unbelievably good news. This is, and this is why I say this passage in the midst of the technical arguments is just bursting with the heart of God. Again, when it speaks of the purpose of which he speaks, it's not talking about Abraham's purpose, it's talking about God's purpose. That we would know that this God is for us and that he loves us and that he wants other people other than Abraham. He wants the world, he wants the nations to be credited this righteousness How will they find out when all the sons of Abraham, the people who have trusted in Christ and all the work that he's done, when we go and when we share this good news? That if they just simply believe, they can be justified, they can be made right, they can have eternal life. And I want to possibly say more about this at the end, but brothers and sisters, do do you understand if this is God's heart, If God's purpose in doing what he did in Abraham's life was to reveal something about who he is and how he wants the world to be saved, should we not have the same heart? Should we not have the same burden to go and to share this good news Um, and to tell the world that if they will simply believe, if they will simply look to Christ, they too can be saved. And so Paul continues on here, um, not only speaking of Abraham or God's intention to, to bless the world, but notice the kindness of God. Again, the countenance of God, the heart of God, to not only bless the world, but to give us the world. This is amazing, the nature of this promise. He goes on in verse 13. Look at verses 13 through 16. He says, For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring, and here's the little phrase, and I'll come back to it then, (laughs) that he would be heir of the world. Heir of the world. Like, I'm king of the world. Like, that's, 
That's the promise. That, I don't know what that was, by the way. Um, but he, like, that's what he promises to Abraham and to that we would be kings, heirs of the world. He goes on, and he's continuing to develop this argument. He goes, it didn't, it didn't come through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, again, that word heirs, faith is known, the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no transgression, but where there is no law, sorry, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. And then here's a key word, and that it may be guaranteed to all his offspring. Um, You've heard me say this before. I used this illustration out west last week, but very quickly, those little comparison exercises. need to repeat this again. A peach is to fruit as broccoli is to a vegetable. A bat is to baseball as a nine iron is to golf. Last week I said works are to the law as faith is to grace. Are you with me? Peaches to fruit, broccoli to vegetable, bat to baseball, nine iron to golf. Works are to the law as faith is to grace. But also you could insert it, say it this way. Works are to the law as faith is to promises. What does our faith cling to? What, what are we believing? We're believing the promises of God. And the promises of God are given to express the heart of God. Again, he does not just speak. He does not just give us his promises to tell us what he will do, that's part of it, that we can know how this whole thing ends and what he's going to bring about. But it's, he gives his promises to express his heart. Grace is expressed through promises as thoughts and intentions are expressed through words. You with me? Grace is expressed through promises as thoughts and intentions are expressed through words, that the gracious heart of God is being expressed through his promises. He comes to Abraham, and again, it's before the law is given. The sequence is important. That's Paul's entire argument here. And that's what it says when it goes down in verse, in verse 15, or verse 14. He says, for, it is the adherence, for if it is the adherence of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null, and the promises are void. For the law brings wrath, but where, and then this little phrase is, um, you might wonder what this means. Let me try to explain it. He says, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Ken Bo explains this well. Let me just quote him here. He says, Paul means here that if a promise is made on the basis of law, it would never be fulfilled. Why? Because law reveals transgressions, and transgression demands the wrath of God. The first time Abraham or one of his descendants sinned, if the promise had been based on law, God's wrath would be unleashed and the benefits of the promise would be retracted. But where the inheritance of the world is based on promise instead of law, there is no transgression. That does not mean there is no sin. It simply means that there is no transgression being watched for as the basis for annulling the blessings of the promise. Does that make sense? God comes to him and he just gives this promise to express his, his gracious heart. And guys, this is so important for us. Sometimes you'll hear me say that we need to cling to the promises of God. We need to claim the, prom- the promises of God. We need to understand the promises rightly within Scripture and within the context and all that stuff. But guys, this is how we live. Our faith is fueled by promises. 
And if the fire of your heart burning bright for Christ or, or, or the fire of your life burning brightly for Christ uh, feels weak and is just a dimly lit flame, it is because you are not fueling your soul with the promises of God. Our faith is fueled by promises as fire is fueled by wood. We need to throw the promises of God into our heart so that we can burn brightly for Jesus Christ. And again, one of the promises here that I want to look at and the unbelievable kindness and generosity of it is that little phrase in the middle of verse 13, that we would be heirs of the world. Heirs of the world. How does, how does Paul come up with this? Because that little phrase that Abraham would be heir of the world, that little phrase specifically is not stated anywhere. In God's promises to Abraham, again in Genesis 12 through, through 22, um, he's promised offspring, and then that offspring is later, he's pro- that offspring is promised to not just be one, but to be nations. Um, he's, promised, he's promised land, uh, and he's also promised that through his life, he's going to be a blessing to the world and to the nation's around him. Well, probably the most parallel passage to the one we're looking at here where Paul expands on this more. And again, this is important. This is theological work. You need to know how this, how this works. But it's in Galatians chapter 3. Let me read part of it to you quickly. Paul says, to give a human example, brothers, this is Galatians 3.15. He says, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring or seed. He goes on and he says, it does not say and to offsprings or to, or to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Paul's saying the promise was to Abraham and to his seed, speaking, looking forward to Christ. Again, in the Old Testament, this was somewhat shrouded. It was there, but it was like shadowy, didn't fully know it. This is the revelation that we now live in in the New Testament on this side of the cross, that Jesus came to reveal not something new, but to expand upon and to make clear the promises of God all the way back then. And and then Paul goes on in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 25. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, listen, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, he says, have put on Christ. And then he says this in verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. See the phrase? We are heirs according to the promise. The promise was to Abraham and to his seed, to Christ. When we believe in Christ, we are born again. Just like we were once born in Adam, we are now born again in Christ and all the promises that were given to Abraham, and not only to Abraham, but to Christ, are all ours. If you want to just stick in the book of Romans, we'll get there eventually. In chapter 8, he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And, And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs or co-heirs with Christ. And see, Christ wasn't just promised a little sliver of land over in the Middle East. Christ has the world. And so these promises, it's not just about this little sliver of land known as modern-day Israel in the Middle East. Or in, in the Middle East. The promises are much the promises are for the world. Because Christ is ruler of all the nations. 
In fact, Hebrews, and we don't have time to go there, but in Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible, again, speaking of Abraham, who we're talking about here, says that if he had been thinking of an earthly country, he would have had opportunity to, to return. But as it is, Abraham was seeking a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called his God. Now, the whole, the whole point here in all of this <coughs> is that, <coughs> guys, sometimes, if I could just put flesh on this for a second as, as to why it matters, sometimes, again, thinking about the heart of God towards us, his countenance towards us, we think that he is stingy. We might not say it that way, but that's how we live. And don't worry, I'm not going to take this some sort of weird, like, prosperity gospel. What I'm saying is God has so much more for us than just anything that this world has to offer, do you understand? He wants to give us the world. He wants to show the abundance of his power and the graciousness, the generosity of his promises. And he wants us to live in light of it. And, and the thing that, um, although it, it's not directly stated as application in the midst of this, the thing that has just been on my heart so much this week and that I've been praying for as I've been praying through this passage and praying for us, knowing that we're going to be looking at it this morning, is that we would somehow, that God by his Holy Spirit, even right now as I'm speaking, as I finish this message, that he would please just stir our hearts to be willing to go and to share the gospel. Folks, sometimes, if I can just rant for just a little bit, I feel like we think we're just playing games. Like, I, like, like as if the promises of God, the mission of God, going to the front lines, sharing the gospel, reaching the nations, making disciples of all peoples all over the world, and seeing God provide for us in that way. Sometimes I think it's like we think we're just going to sit here and, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's cool, but that's for somebody else. It's not for somebody else. It's for anyone, including anyone in this room, who will believe that there is a God who wants to give them the world. Not for the sake of your glory or for the sake of your comfort, but for the sake of the glory of his name. I want us to believe this. Why, why are these promises given? Why does God give these promises to Abraham and to us? Is it so that we would just sit and live nice little comfortable lives? No, it's so that we would get up and that we would go and that we would lay down our lives knowing, I don't know how it's all going to work out. That we literally live lives like Abraham, going back to that little phrase, but uh, verse 12, but those who walk in the footsteps of the faith of their father Abraham. How did it all start with Abraham? And God says, Abraham, get up and go to a land. Well, which land? I'm going to show you what land that is later on. But for right now, I just want you, I want you to get up and I want you to go. I'm like, well, that's not very specific. I know, and yet he did it. Why? Because God is able to be trusted. And, and I, I want us to understand, I want us to believe this. And I'll just be honest with you. I don't, we say that we believe it. I know that right now, like if I went around with a little doctrinal statement explaining on paper everything that I'm just saying, we would check that, but yes, I believe with what you're saying here. Does your life prove it? Does the way you live your life, is it consistent with this? Is it in Christ Jesus you are an heir of the world? He's going to take care of everything. Abraham and Sarah were barren. They had nothing. They were weak. They didn't bring anything to the table. You don't need to bring anything to the table. What you need to do is you need to believe him and be willing to go. And I just want to say, folks, we're not here to play games. We're not here to just gather a bunch of people in a room and just play church. 
I want us to go. I want us to plant churches. I want to send people to the nations. I want to go to the front lines. And I want to send them from here. You're like, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure we need somebody uh, powerful or with some privilege or you know, somebody with some sort of authority or fancy name or some letters behind their name and in, in their title. I'm pretty sure we'll, we'll need them to approve of us first. Why? Why are you looking to the approval of man when the word of God says you're an heir of the world and that he's with you and that you can go? Just go. But we're chicken. A lot of chicken illustrations this morning. Chick-fil-A. I know that might not be a real technical term, but in love, in love, in love, and you have the same right to look back at me and to challenge me in well. In love, I'm looking at every single one of you kind of in the eye, and I say, are you chicken? Is that what's stopping you? Is the opinions of man stopping you? Let me speak to the young folks for just a second. And again, you're going to have to give me some grace on this because I know that what I could say could be misconstrued and twisted to say something that I'm not saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Is young people, I don't care. I don't care what your parents have dreamed for you. I care about what Jesus Christ, who is your only Lord and Savior, I care about his plans for you. And you should too. And let me just say this, because again, I'm a parent, and I promise you, nobody loves my boys more than Hannah and I love my boys. Love our boys. So parents, don't, if I'm rubbing you the wrong way, but you, you tell me that this isn't, isn't true biblically. I know that we have plans for our kids, and we want them to have the best, because we love them. We love them. And that's okay. But they belong to Jesus. And young people, your parents, you, yes, they're good parents. God bless them. You honor, you honor your parents by doing what Jesus has you to do. And listen, complete, like, is the only way you can honor Jesus by going to the mission field? No, not at all. Again, I, I can't, I'm nobody's Lord. But if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and he's telling you to go, here's what happens. Is I see people, and many times it is young people, with, and they have this desire, they have this, 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 this desire, this call from God that they sense to go. And it's very clear. It's not complicated. They know it. But then they get sucked into asking all the what ifs. Well, how are you going to pay for this? And what does your future look like? And what about your retirement? And how are you going to pay for a house? And what if you want to start a family? And what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? That's not what a life of faith looks like. A life of faith looks like I'm going to get up and I'm going to go, not understanding maybe even where I'm going or how it's all going to be provided for. But I know I've got this promise. And promises fuel our faith as wood fuels a fire. And one of the promises that's right here is it says, God says that because of Jesus, I'm an heir of the world. See, what do we do with these promises? What, what do we do with these great and precious promises? Are we like the servant that took the talent, which again, one talent was 25 years worth of wages. Are we like the servant that took the talent and just buried it in the ground? Or are we like the servant that takes what we're given and we go out and we use it as best we can in faith for the glory of Christ? We have to believe him. We have to go. And, uh, and again, these promises are so big that a temporary earthly life cannot fully embrace or hold the bigness, the greatness 
of these eternal promises that God gives us. And that's why we need eternal life. Remember, one more thing on this. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Is that he came to Jesus in all his, his power and influence and in all his money. And he says that he wants eternal life. And he says, okay. Now think about this. Jesus is like, okay, I got it for you. <laughs> that's awesome, right? Like that's the first thing we miss a lot of times. Okay, I got it. Here's what you need to do. If you want that, you got to let go of everything else you're holding on to. So go sell everything you have and then come follow me. Because Jesus is the life. It's not, it's, it's in a person. And, and you guys know the story. He, it says he went away sad. And Jesus, even though he'd offered him everything, Jesus says he turned and says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And Jesus goes, how, how hard it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. See, that rich young ruler, he thought, he just couldn't, he thought that he would be giving up so much when in reality, he was giving up nothing. He was giving up absolutely nothing compared to the eternal life that was offered him. To be an heir of the world and to know Christ. Just one little promise, heirs of the world, it's an amazing thing. Lastly, we see the kindness and the smile of God, the heart of God, the kind intention of God towards his people in his willingness to be able to display his power to change the world. To change the world. Pick it up again in verse 16 and get into 17. He says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring and not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. He says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. And then here's, again, this amazing truth about our God, who gives life to the dead and who calls into existence the things that do not exist. Um, here in God's dealing with Abraham, again, you guys know the story. 15, credited righteousness by faith. 16, major sin uh, with Hagar. 17, given the sign and seal of circumcision that the righteousness had stood. It was also at that time in chapter 17, mainly in verse 5, that Paul is quoting here in chapter, Romans chapter 4, verse 17, where he says, I've made you the father of many nations. You guys remember this story? Abram's name up to this point was not Abraham, it was Abram. And Abram means exalted father. But God, in that moment, says, I'm going to change it to Abraham, which means father of nations or father of a multitude. Now, don't miss the irony in this. Him and his wife are old and she's barren. <laughs> and God says, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to rename you. I'm going to call you something first. I'm going to declare you something first before you actually are that thing. Your name is Father of Multitudes. Yet he was not. Yet God worked to bring it about. Do you understand the picture here of all that we've been hammering away at over the last couple of weeks? And we're going to do it one more week. 
well, a couple more weeks too, as in the end of chapter 4 and into the beginning of chapter 5, and this idea of being justified by faith. That it is a declaration. It is a righteousness that is credited to us. And the point here in Abraham's life is that if God called Abraham the father of many nations before he was the father of many nations, and we see how God worked throughout history to bring about that promise, then we can also believe that when God calls us righteous, he has the power to bring it about. But just as Abraham could only receive the fullness of the promises through dying and through receiving eternal life, we also can only receive the fullness of the promise that we will be made righteous through death and being raised again to an indestructible life. Do you understand this? So when God declares you righteous, the truth is, is that in this life we are declared righteous, we have right standing in Christ, and yet we are still sinners. But he declares us, he credits righteousness to us. But just as he had the power to bring about nations from Abraham and Sarah's deadness, the deadness of their womb, in the same way he has the power to bring about actual righteousness in us one day when we stand before him in his presence. And all we have to do is just believe. <laughs> just believe that he will do it. Again, Paul is primarily hammering here in this section of Romans on our justification, but do you see how justification rolls into our sanctification, our practical becoming like Christ, our practical experience of becoming like Christ? is that we have to be rooted and grounded in, in this reality, folks, that it is not us who does it. It is God who promises to do it and will do it through us. Um, and there's this little phrase here that's been just kind of stuck in me this week. He says in verse 17, I have made you the father of many nations. And then he says in this little phrase, in the presence of the God in whom he believed. He says, God said that to him, and in the presence of the God in whom he believed. You know, have you any, has anybody been listening, watching, reading anything about um, the Asbury revival? Anybody? One of the, some of the interns sent me the Asbury is a little university down in Kentucky. And um, actually throughout their history, they've had several kind of waves of revival throughout the history of that school. Um, and uh, one of the interns sent me a, an article last night that it seems that maybe this same revival, so to speak, is maybe spreading to some other college campuses like Cedarville. I think there's a Leesville College, Sam, Samford College maybe, a, a, few other, a few other small ones. But, and again, people are always like, Whenever God does something, people like to decide whether or not he can do it. <laughs> um, and we like to question these things. And, and, and on, one, on the one hand, many people, you know, we're always a tad skeptical because of so many of the abuses and so many of the counterfeits, the counterfeit outpourings of God's spirit that exist today. And they do. They, they exist. And we, need, we, and we need to watch out for them. But I just want to let you know, and again, I haven't, I've only been watching the Asbury Revival and reading about it from a distance, but it, it seems good and it seems legit. But, but here's what I would say is whatever it is, the, the best that we hope for that to be 
I just want to say, guys, you know that we need that here, right? You know that? Again, what, you know, whether there's right or wrong, what, but you, you know that whatever, like in the best sense of the word, whatever it is, the outpouring of God's Spirit, we need that here. And I'm telling you that just, just one moment of simple childlike faith in the presence of God, just like it was for Abraham, one moment in God's presence where he says, you're going to be the father of a multitude, Abraham goes, Okay. One moment of faith in God's presence can absolutely change the world. Can absolutely change the world. And that's why I pray that God would, through worship, through the proclamation of his word, through prayer, but through however he sees fit, in the end, through the sovereignty of his Holy Spirit, that he would meet us with his presence that we would just simply believe. Simply believe that what he says is true. Because this is the God, and again here, and I'll wrap up, his power to change the world. Who, the God in whom he believed and in, in whose presence he believed is the God who gives life to the dead and who calls into existence things that do not exist. What does Paul have in mind here? Gives life to the dead, maybe the deadness of Sarah's womb. Maybe the deadness, uh, the metaphorical deadness of, remember, God asks Abraham to take his son Isaac up a mountain and to raise a knife and to get ready to kill him, to call into existence the things that do not exist, to call into existence nations, where they, the nations from a barren man and woman, in, where there's nothing. I mean, for sure, in, in regards to Abraham's life, he has that in mind, but I think what he also has in mind is that he is willing and able to give life to dead sinners. And he is willing and able to bring righteousness into places where it does not currently exist. Because he is the God who does these things. He's the God who raises the dead and that just speaks things forth and they happen. Worship team, you can come up. And we'll close. Um, let me go back to where I started. And just as we close in all that we've talked about and thinking about God's countenance, his demeanor towards us. When you think about that, what is it that you see? What is it that you see? And again, as I've challenged us to go here this morning, as I've challenged us to, to believe these promises and to take them into, and to put them into action, to obey with our feet as Abraham did, to have faith with our feet and to go. Um, I, I, again, I, I, I don't want us to think that God is up there like, angry at us. I, I think about like all the, all the doubts, all the fears, all the reasons that you could give about all the what ifs that why you can't go. And what if God isn't going, oh, you better believe it. What if God's smiling at you? What if God is smiling at you in all your doubts and in all your 
reasons, all your excuses that you bring before him as to why he couldn't use you? What if he's just smiling at you going, really? You think that's too difficult for me? You think that's too hard? You think I can't change your circumstances? You think I can't empower you and equip you to do what I've called you to do, even though you don't have any formal training in it, even though you, you, know, you don't have any formal education? You think I can't? Is that? See, I think that it is. I think that's exactly the, the look on his face. Because he looks at us as his children. And brother, sister, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is not one moment that if your life is now hidden with Christ and God, there is not one moment that the countenance of God's face is not a smile towards you. He looks at you and you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Do you have some big hang-ups? Do you have some pretty big, I don't know, Hagar and Ishmael moments? Maybe, but it doesn't change the fact that you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And he's not going to give up on you. And all I want to say is as we close and as we stand and as we sing, please just believe it. Just believe it. I don't care if you don't feel it. We don't live by feelings, we live by faith. I don't care if you don't have goosebumps in this moment. I just want you to believe it. Father, thanks for today. Thanks for your word. Thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for going out of your way to come to Abraham when you came to him to show us that you want to credit righteousness not just to Abraham, but to all who know that they have nothing to offer. Thank you for the ginormous nature of the promises that you give us, that we will be heirs of the world. If we have that, what else, what excuse can we give? We thank you that you alone have the power to raise the dead and to make men who are dead in their trespasses and sins live. You have the power to bring about life. You have the power to bring about churches and Christians and disciples and believers where there are none now. Lord, help us to believe it. Help us to live in light of it. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys stand with me.